0: Welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. And welcome back to Note Doctors. Thank you so much for joining us on this latest episode. Before we dive into our conversation, we should mention that we are working on making our presence on the World Wide Web um, even larger than it already is, because it is a considerable size. Um, but we are, uh, or we have created an email account. So we are we're back in 1996. We're really ahead of the game here. And uh, you can reach out to us through Note Podcast at gmail.com. So if you have questions, you don't like using Facebook or Instagram because we are on both of those platforms, you prefer email and that trusty way of communicating, um, you can reach out to us again on our email address at Podcast at gmail.com. So... Let's transition though to our conversation. Um, And our guest for today is Dr. Cynthia Gonzalez. So, Jen, tell us a little bit
1: more about Dr. Gonzalez. Will do. So, Cynthia I. Gonzalez, associate professor at Texas State University, is the author of the first collection of aural skills exercises published in Smart Music and it's titled The Listen-Sing Method. In 2018, she was selected for the TXST Presidential Award for Excellence in Teaching, and the following year, she was one of three instructors honored as the regent's teacher by the Texas State University System, which is seven colleges and universities. In addition to teaching music theory and aural skills, she has sung professionally with Conspirare, Santa Fe Desert Chorale, and the San Antonio Chamber Choir. and. If you want to feel inspired and excited to go to your classroom and do music theory and oral skills teaching, then you need to stay tuned because we had just the best time talking to Cynthia. It's a really great conversation.
2: From her classes, I learned known to unknown, simple to complex, and concrete to abstract. So that has stuck with me for decades. And so that when I'm trying to create a lesson, what do students already know? What's simple? What is concrete? Because almost everything that we do in music theory, and especially in oral skills, maxes out the abstract scale. And so at every lesson, I'm trying to think in terms of what do you know, what's simple and what's concrete. And so the more that... I'm asking them specific questions to find out what do they know and is that the simplest thing to know and is that the most concrete thing to know and then how do I get them over to the unknown, the complex, the abstract.
0: So today our very special guest is Dr. Cynthia Gonzalez. We are so pleased to have you Cynthia when we are thinking about. Uh, folks, we wanted to have on this podcast when we were starting you know, a little over a year ago. Your name was right at the top of the list, and so we've been uh, in conversation with you for quite a while. And so we're so happy that we can finally work out our schedules so that we could have you on um, to talk about your experience and your work as a as a music theorist. Um, before we get into some more details, though, we always like to ask our guests a little bit how. They got into music theory, you know, why would you do that? You have a lot of opportunities in your life. You know, you're talented. You can do all these other things. Why on earth did you end up being a music theorist of all things?
2: I think it's because this is the way my brain works. Hmm. This is the way that I enjoy interacting with music. Yes, I had a good career as a performer. As a professional choral singer with, some, with Santa Fe Desert Chorale, with Conspirare, with some really good professional groups. But even in performance, it was, how is the music constructed? And those are the, that's a question that music theorists like to answer. And so I would find myself asking these questions and my student colleagues as an undergrad were like, who cares? <laughs> like, well, I do. <laughs> I want to know how it works, how the piece fits together. And, mm-hmm. and so I, this is simply the way that a music theory answers or music theory poses the questions that I want to explore when I'm interacting with music, when I'm performing music, when I'm studying music.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did those questions develop? You know, did, was it as a young age you kind of like to get underneath the hood of music or try to figure out how it worked or was it you know once you got into college and maybe were exposed to theory? So where did that kind of uh, investigation of music kind of uh, start with you?
2: It would have been when I was still in junior high, high school in that I started composing and my mother has a music degree and she actually is an alumnus of Texas State where I now teach (laughs) which is a fun thing and and I wrote uh, a piece of music I think I would have been a freshman in high school and my composition had parallel fifths (laughs) <laughs> My mother was horrified. <laughs> it sounded good to me, you know. So, uh, and those little compositions—it uh, was a set of three songs. Uh, the texts were all by Dag Hammarskjöld I might not be saying that name—a Danish diplomat—and uh, they ended up on a student recital, a student composition recital. Which was really pretty fun, mm-hmm. uh, and and so I thought, oh well, I need to know more. How come I'm not allowed to write those perfect fifths that I thought were so beautiful? So.
1: <laughs> I love that, and I don't think we've ever gotten that answer before. But I feel really similarly that music theory poses the questions that I want to answer and that I want to find the answer for. I love that. Um, I don't think anyone's ever said anything quite like that before. We've had a lot of answers to, like, how did you find yourself teaching music theory? (laughs) But that's the first time I've heard that one. I really like it. So before you were associate professor at Texas State, you've, as you said, you sang with some professional choral ensembles. You also taught in the public school. Is that right? For a little bit. You had a music education degree. So what are those things? How do those things inform what you do now in the classroom? That's a great question,
2: Jen. Yes. My first degree was in music education because music theory was not an option at the undergrad level. And if, even if it had been, what do you do with a music theory degree at the undergrad level? So my first job was teaching at a private K-12 school, and it was boarding. It was a boarding school for high school. So I actually lived at one end of the girls' dorm, and out my back door was the girls' dorm. But in the morning, I would start with the littlest kids, and they were grouped into classes by age groups. So I would start with, like, the 3- three- to 5-year-olds. And Four then through the, yeah, the, through the day, move to the 6- six- to 8-year-olds, and then the 9- nine- to 12-year-olds, and junior high, and, and I'd end with high school choir, which we started at that school. What I learned through starting in the pu- in a private school, were some of the fundamentals, because how we acquire musical skills and knowledge, the sequence is going to be the same, regardless of our age. And so learning how to teach little children how to sing, or young boys at the age of 10 who still can't match pitch, <laughs> I used that skill this morning, as a matter of fact. <laughs> there you go. So, and then what I really wanted, what I thought I was going to do when I was myself in junior high, was be a junior high choir director. So, my first public school job was as a junior high choir director in McAllen, Texas, which is right along the border. That's a whole nother story. But again, I was learning how it is that people acquire musical knowledge and musical skills. For example, if you're in English class and the teacher says, okay, take the piece of paper and put your name on the top line. Those, that same set of instructions in music class means something entirely different. Because we, what we call, on a line is not what an English class or any other class. And so hmm. I I had to learn something about some things about music vocabulary and because we use the same vocabulary for the most mm-hmm. part, but we give it a really specific meaning that doesn't relate to the rest of the world. <laughs> that is
0: that's a really good insight because yeah it's on a line is actually on top of a line in english right yes. not actually on it it's like and with intervals right intervals are kind of just crazy for us because it's it's a third is you know four half steps and things like that you know on a keyboard like sometimes the and i think we forget as music theorists or teachers right. that that's not always clear right
2: right right so yeah with a set of sixth graders who were, it was their first semester in choir, I would go to the teacher outlet store and buy those strips of paper that have lines on them. And they were long, they were like manila folder type paper. And I would pass out these strips and I'd say, oh, write your name in a musical space. Write your name on a musical line. And you know, one lesson like that and that clears up everything. Mm. But it Learning how to talk to non-musicians is part of the skill that we need and getting them into our lingo and Mm -hmm. our jargon. So those years were very valuable as a teacher. But I was not a very successful choir director in those days. (laughs) And so uh, that's when I realized, you know, I really... Liked music theory. Let's go to grad school, and, <laughs> uh, and and let's go get some degrees in music theory, and then I can teach at the college level, and I can teach music theory at the college level. Of course, this was in the nineteen eighties, and so this was before AP music theory was the was as prominent as it is now, and. So, this, for, there are people who they're working in the public schools and all they teach is music theory AP or music theory. That wasn't available t- 40 years ago because mm-hmm. uh, I really thought I wanted to teach public schools, but if, at the time, if you wanted to teach music theory, you were in the college.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think even like teaching solely music theory at the high school level is not super common. We had Akira Sato uh, join us on the podcast and we were talking about how he's maybe one of like five or six people in the country who have a job just like that. So. So,
2: yeah, so it was going back to grad school and. For example, oh, I re- I was in grad school taking Schenkerian analysis from Kevin Corson. And it, it at the time, okay. Okay, I'm such a nerd that even when I was a public school music teacher, I would take out my collection of Bach chorales and you know, label the key and start to put roman numerals and of course not everything works, but that's all I knew. So the first time that I took Shankarian analysis, it answered so many questions that what I had learned as an undergrad didn't even begin to address. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Well, I was going to go back to your point about how things don't necessarily translate from the other subject areas. That happened to me twice this week, both in a linguistic way, but also in a mathematical numerical way where just intervals like like uh, somebody else mentioned, which is, you know, I was talking about how when you add an octave and somebody was saying, I don't understand how when you add an octave, it doesn't add up. And I was like, yeah, that's right. And I did a demonstration where I said, let's take a major third and I said, add an octave. And I wrote plus eight and then we figured out equals 11. Right? Right? And then no, it's not. You know, it's actually a major tenth when you add an octave and why yeah. that is, you know
2: Counting one from note the, twice. Yeah. Exactly,
3: yeah. right. And then yeah. from the more, I guess, linguistic side, you know, talking about I was talking about diminished fifth versus augmented fourth, right? And how it's different, but yet and harmonically you could play them both. And then one student said, Well, isn't it a tritone? I said, Yeah and then another student was confused that like, you know, the fact that there's like try like three but then it's not a third you know it's like a diminished fifth or oh, i'm going to fourth and i had to go into the discussion of that so you know yeah. yeah but it was so nice because that's one thing that i think we've missed Um, in the last year is like the ability to really answer those questions in the moment when they're learning it versus watching like a recorded video you know or even on zoom some of them are less likely to stop you during a a train of thought or something versus in person you know right away the person's like wait a minute adding an octave this isn't making sense you know like my number sense is kicking in and it's telling me this doesn't add up Um, and same thing with like tritone versus you know diminished fifth same kind of thing just chiming in immediately like hold on we're talking about try, but there's no three here. Am I understanding this correct? You know? Um, so yeah, that was that was my first first reaction to what you said. I think we've all can relate to that on, on some level, this taking a step back and making sure that what we're explaining is super clear from the very, very beginning, notationally, mm-hmm. and also just the sequencing and, and scaffolding of what we're doing.
1: I was exactly. it's, it's interval week here too. And uh, <laughs> we've been doing intervals in theory one. And I was thinking this morning about how much um, to do what we do and to really like love what we do does require a particular kind of patience in that, as I was describing, you know, how we invert an interval and then we take the, the note that used to be the higher note and now we make it the lower note, you know, and as you're saying these things that to us feel so, I mean, just a million times we've done this or, you know, it's so kind of second nature. And I was thinking, I mean, I don't mind saying this over and over again, but it does take that particular kind of like, I don't mind that I have to a million times say, raise the leading tone in minor. I mean, I probably will die having said that millions of times, you know, but I don't mind. I love that I get to do that. I love that I get to do that work. I have found that sometimes
2: I specifically don't use language that I think the students have already heard. Mm -hmm. So, because if they still haven't mastered the concept with the language that they've been hearing, I want new Mm -hmm. language. Mm -hmm. So, when teaching interval inversions, it it takes them a while to understand this, but then they, they do fine with it. I talk about when two letter names are close together... Versus far apart. Mm -hmm. If B and G are close together, then they're a third, some kind of third, or specifically a major third. If B and G are far apart, they're a sixth, the minor sixth. And so getting them to conceptualize the pitches away from the staff and just as in, oh, those two pitches close together, far apart. And instead of saying which is the higher or which is the lower pitch, uh, yeah. And, and I have had that work. Uh, some of them uh, stumble on it because it's new vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I gave up altogether teaching things about raise and lower the sixth and seventh scale degree. Because, uh, it, it, if, it, again, if they haven't mastered it before they get to me, and that's mm-hmm. the language they've been hearing... Then me repeating that same language does no good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I abandoned yeah, that. I
3: had one of them. I had one of my students um, yesterday that was talking about intervals as the spaces between blocks of sound on, like, um, GarageBand or digital audio workstations oh, or whatnot. Oh, wow. like like uh, keyboard. That was roll. the first time somebody yeah. had come to me and had conceptualized intervals in that kind of visual space on an, a digital audio program, and I thought, wow, I should be incorporating oh. this more because I'm sure more of them think of it in this way. I just have never done it that way. but. They're all thinking of it this way, maybe. I don't know. So I thought that was interesting, too.
1: I like that. Well, and I think, I mean, a lot of times if you end up a music theory professor, you probably didn't learn intervals the way we're having to teach them, in that, like, the way I learned intervals is that my horn teacher would say something like, that perfect fifth is out of tune. And so I'd be like, oh, so those two notes together, that B flat and that F, are something called a perfect fifth. I wonder what that means. And then some other time, my piano teacher would be like, that perfect fifth that you're playing is not correct, you know? And so you start to make all those connections in much more the way that we do when we use language, and you kind of use other context clues to figure it out. So then when I got to college and my professor was like, now let's talk about intervals. Intervals are the distance between two notes and that distance is measured this way. And then I was like, oh, yeah, okay, so that makes sense. But I already had this big framework for it. So a lot of times our students are coming in either without the framework or they haven't had the context clues, and we're just giving them this thing that feels really abstract because you add the number eight and the answer is somehow wrong, right? right. <laughs> so, so, yeah. yeah. It's a really well, interesting thing to think about, the language yeah. of it all. Just yesterday in a graduate-level
2: course, uh, it's, the title of it is Musical Styles, and was discussing tonal transformations just in case someone needs tonal transformations for their semester project. So this was the first time actually that I've given a whole, I'm dedicating two days of lecture. And I was reading Frank Lehman's article, uh, a a, a music theory through film, and he has a chart at the bottom of (laughs) one of the pages. And it referred to interval class 3, interval class 4, interval class 5, ic three, four, five, And someone smartly raised their hand and said, I don't know what that, that means. And so I explained it, and they, they got it, but I had to say careful because just because it's interval class 3, it's counting half steps. So it just so happens that three half steps is a third but mm-hmm. so is or so. But four half steps, we would also call a third. But that's right. interval class four. <laughs> yeah. And okay, so interval class five does c- take care of the fifth. But t- it doesn't all work that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. The, yeah. Labels. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. They're logical to us because we know the complete system.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah
0: yeah and so talk us through a little bit about you know when you when you're confronted with an issue like that where it's either a language issue or a way that you know how to explain it and doesn't you know track with another student what do you kind of think about or what do you how do you engage with that student in kind of diagnosing the problem you know how what are some things that you you think about or the kind of probing questions that you ask to kind of see like where, where are you missing this obvious thing to me at <laughs> yes. least?
2: And you've just nailed it. You have to ask a lot of questions to find out what does the student know and how do I connect what they know to what they don't know. Um, when I was at North Texas as an undergrad, I had several classes with Professor Hildegard Frlich, who's now retired. and and from her classes i learned known to unknown simple to complex and concrete to abstract so that has stuck with me for decades and so that when i'm trying to create a lesson what do students already know what's simple what is concrete because almost everything that we do in music theory and especially in oral skills maxes out the abstract scale I mean, the, the meter for abstractness it just goes to the top I mean oral skills sight singing that's so abstract It's not like, just last week I said to students, it's not like I can get inside your brain and change the pitches that you're hearing. It is so abstract. And so at every lesson, I'm trying to think in terms of what do you know, what's simple, and what's concrete. And so the more that I'm asking them specific questions to find out what do they know and is that the simplest thing to know and is that the most concrete thing to know and then how do i get them over to the unknown the complex the abstract mm-hmm. it's hard but it's so fun at the same time mm-hmm. because no one students issues i was going to say problems but 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 you know challenges are the same as any other students because they've all come from their own experiences as a musician, and then on top of that, they all play different instruments, or there's so many different instruments represented in the room. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have frequently noticed, for example, that guitarists put pitches in the wrong octave, because guitar is written an octave higher than it sounds. And, of course, kids that play transposing instruments and other instruments that transpose by octave or, or real instrumental transpositions. So I've, I, a few years ago, I started uh, the first four or five listening homeworks at the beginning of Oral One, would have a staff, and they're listening to an audio file. And on the, the written page, I would give them the letter name, in between a grand staff, and they had to notate where on the grand staff they were hearing that letter name from the audio file. Mm -hmm. And uh, this year, we recently changed our learning management system Mm -hmm. and trying to put so much of the learning activities inside the LMS the learning management system so that uh, to maximize class time and so created a page of here's the notation and here's what it sounds like so a graphic and an audio file uh, hooked up together and work through this page now take a little quiz and there are they've done that four times we're just finishing week four so some of them uh, are still having troubles with that, hmm. and you know, that baffles me. But at, at most of them have done great with that. But that's an issue mm-hmm. because, based on their prior musical experiences, they yeah. might not have a sound association for where it lies on where a single pitch lies on the grand staff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find that really interesting because I think that's problem we all deal with our skills, and I've never really thought about creating an assessment or just an mm. exercise just on that. You know, it's all it always kind of comes up with melodic dictation or doing fragments, but just saying identify the octave. Right here's the note, um, because even students who may not play a transposing instrument, but who are who play a treble instrument, you know, when they get to the bass clef. You know, they have a real problem, is it high, low? And then the opposite for, you know, a tubist, trying to find where that is in the treble clef. <laughs> you know, good luck. Um, and so I think that's a great way of, like, isolating a real problem area for some students. And some students have probably no issue, and um, others, it's a, it's a big problem, but kind of diagnosing that right off the get-go, so smart.
2: Well, at this point in the semester, I've now figured out who isn't doing so well on this skill. And Mm -hmm. the learning management system lets me uh, make specific assignments to individual students. So from this point forward, the only students who have to work through that assessment every week are the ones who have still not mastered that skill. Mm -hmm. And so the technology lets me really tailor Uh, learning activities for specific students it does mean that I have to keep track of things I have to keep track of okay who's who hasn't mastered this who hasn't mastered that but the goal is that everybody get to the finish line regardless at everybody get to the finish line by the end of the semester regardless of where you started
1: right Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah right and that's that's the challenge it That's is. A Some a really of them have point. already started halfway around the track. I have I have that going on in one of my classes right now where I have a group of students who are so incredibly strong. I just gave an exam and six students out of 19 got 100. On this exam. You're a fantastic teacher. Well, it's funny, (laughs) because my dean said that when I was sharing this information, like, this group of students is so strong. And uh, he said, well, you must be a really great teacher. And I said, well, I mean, but I've taught this class before, and that's not always been the result, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So, I think actually, you know... I was still the teacher that time. Yeah, I was still there. It was the same me. But, you know, I think this group actually has some really big skills. But there are a few people in the room who did not come in with all of that. So, keeping some of them alert and with me and engaged while others are having a hard time still figuring out that a sharp is strange and a sharp key signature. Right. And this kid is, has now already played all seven scales I put on the board and is improvising on the mini keyboard. Right. So like, yeah, managing all of that in one room at one time is a challenge. Mm -hmm. I love that your LMS has allowed you to find a way to let some of them move on and and the, those that still need that skill, you know, that is one advantage of online activities like that is that, you know, right. that you don't all have to be in the same room. Some kids can be done with something while others are still working at it. I like that. That's really exactly.
3: good. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of piggybacking on that. I know, Cynthia, you've worked a lot um, throughout your life, maybe more intensively in the last year or two with with smart music and trying to integrate that into your classes and kind of use that to give students their own feedback, but yet also like make progress on their own and then get help in specific areas that, that they need help in. Um, Can you share, are you willing to share some of the uh, kind of strengths of using smart music and what your, what your experiences have been with, with that?
2: Sure. Smart music started as a band practice software with band repertoire so that band students could go home and practice on their own and then return to school having practiced not just randomly without any supervision but with a computer showing the music on screen, clicking off the tempo and then on screen if the computer algorithm doesn't hear the correct frequency, for the pitch and attack for the rhythm then it lowers your score and it also gives you some visual feedback is meaning red and green and now even yellow notes green notes after you've played on what you see the green notes means you played it correct with respect with respect to pitch frequency and rhythmic attack if it's red, you just got it wrong. If it's <laughs> if it's yellow, that means it was the right pitch frequency but at the wrong time. So, one of my trombone professors showed this to me, and I thought, "Bazinga! This is what my students need to practice sight reading because, you know, if you go into a practice room, and practice sight reading, you already have to be a flawless reader to know that you got something wrong and then to know how to fix it. Mm-hmm. And oh, several years ago, Stacy Davis at UT San Antonio presented a paper on, and, and then she has since had it published, on error detection. And the the ability to detect, maybe I should say, the ability to self detect mm-hmm. and correct your errors yep. mm-hmm. is, is not very common. So, and I'm going to do a little a meandering here for a moment. My hypothesis, and I'm starting to record all of my sight singing sessions with students, because my hypothesis is that if they sang it wrong the first time, it's because that's how they thought it was supposed to sound, and rarely do they fix it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, my my job is to give them the tools to sight sing correctly the first time. Okay, that's another conversation. Let's get back to smart music, because I love talking about smart music. <laughs> so you see on screen a piece of music. You can be all by yourself in a room so nobody can hear you. And once you delete a practice session, it's gone. So you can practice by yourself. You get some feedback. Visually, you can also listen to your practice session. It'll give you a score so you can kind of relatively know how you're doing. You can actually practice with valuable, correct assessment so that when you do go into a live in person sight singing session, whether it's a test or you're just sight singing in front of other people, you've had a chance to practice and improve your skills without everybody staring at you in class. That was the number one thing that I really liked. Number two, it gives me a way to actually force students to practice sight singing. (laughs) Because if you say, okay, we're going to sight read next week, try to practice before then, what are they doing going into a practice room? They're just, we don't know what they're doing in the practice room like that. Okay. (laughs) Then the first time I used it, I had a class with some really strong sight readers and at the end of the semester their feedback was hey i think i'm an even better sight reader now because i practiced with smart music so that got me started wow. and that was over a decade ago and i got to know some of the people who work for the company smart music uh, parent company is make music uh, also they make finale mm-hmm. they uh, okay and It turned out that uh, no one else had asked them to do what I wanted smart music to be able to do. So they would say, great, what else do you want us to try to be able to figure out how to do with our software that we didn't design it to do? (laughs) 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 Um, But it it works really well. And again, I can use technology for students to practice skills that I don't have time in class to practice right so one of the exercises that is actually in my collection of oral skills materials that is now published inside smart music it's called the listen sing method is a set of 12 exercises called sing tonic we all talk about hold on to tonic retain tonic is it the same tonic at the beginning and the end so it's a set of 12 exercises and the First measure is always the arpeggio. do 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 And then uh, one, five, seven, one in a block chord. And then in measure three, they hear the tonic. So that it's priming them how to hear tonicization pattern and know which of those pitches you heard was tonic. And then in measure four, you sing tonic. Thereafter, all the even number, even-numbered measures, you sing tonic. But the odd numbered Measures have a Non-tonic pitch And initially It's a pitch From the triad And then it's a pitch From the scale And then it's two pitches from the scale And by the end Of those twelve exercises It's just a tone cluster And you have to keep (laughs) coming back To this initial pitch (laughs) And and it works it helps build the skill and that's a skill we want all students to be able to have yeah but we don't drill that in class very often specifically so that's and and then of course sight reading and i love canons Because canons are assisted sight singing. If they hear what the melody they're about to sing, uh, if they hear what it sounds like before they have to sing it, because uh, the first voice entered and then the second voice, it's a three-voice canon, they come in last. And and canons are both melodic and harmonic. Mm So I... You there's so much you can do right now uh, with an oral one class they get echo singing exercises and i'm so nice i even give them the solfege so they (laughs) hear a, a little melodic motive and then they see it and they're going to do the same exercise three times i can force them to only read bass clef And only read treble clef on a different exercise with the same content. And then again, reading alto clef, different assignment, same context, same content, so that they get practice reading multiple clefs. And it's a secret, but the new web-based smart music will assess you correctly if you're an octave... Higher or lower than is actually notated, yeah. And so, uh, you know, don't ask the piccolo player to read the tube apart. That's going to be more than an octave. But, <laughs> but I, you know, I can write one C clef exercise, and it'll take care of all my students. It's a it's a pretty simple exercise to write at this point. And it was it was funny because when I. When I figured this out I was looking at some cello content Wondering if I could use it for sight singing And I just sight sang it And it assessed me As if I was singing in the correct octave Even though I was an octave away And I went, wait Mm a minute what's happening here whoa <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, re- I remember the first time I mentioned this to some smart music executives and we were on a zoom call and so we we're watching faces and they all started to look down and look embarrassed and I'm like no I lo- I love it this means I don't have to create one specific staff for treble clef voices to read bass clef I can just write one yeah so there's some there's some um, little s- tricks to uh, working with smart music that make our lives a little bit easier when we're trying to increase the student's opportunity to learn skills that we want mm-hmm. them to have, but class time just doesn't provide for it.
0: Oh, absolutely. And of yeah. course, you're at Texas State, so we all teach in, in Texas, and so <laughs> Texas has a great public music education system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the singers that we have coming in, by and large, they know their are solfege, they can sight read, you know, they've been singing in competitions for choirs and solos since they've been in sixth or seventh grade, right? And so you have those students, and then who are your sight reading, you know, uh, masters. <laughs> then you have your piccolo player, your tuba player, right? And we expect those folks to sing, uh, maybe not with the tone or the musicality of the the, the voice student, but we expect them to sing the right pitches and rhythm and have good intonation. So how do you work with those students who are talented and have a lot of gifts and musicality, but they haven't sung since fourth grade? How do you work with those students to bring them up to an acceptable level?
2: That's a great question because that is, that is reality
1: mm-hmm.
2: for, for, some, for our students and for us as their instructors. Uh, I was working with a young man literally just earlier this week during office hours. And my, if I'm working with young men, my first question is, did you sing before your voice changed? And mm-hmm. generally, it's no. No. And then, did you sing after your voice changed? And, of course, they're singing for me, so they need to answer yes, but they're still like, not really. Mm. And so my general technique is, and, and this is women as well, it's just that with men, some of the questions are a little more blatant. But think of the sound of a fire truck or a police siren. What does it sound like? And they will... (laughs) Ooh. <laughs> yeah do that again Ooh. Uh-huh. Well, the ones that come to my house are generally sound higher Ooh. Okay. so and, and then my next imagery so that tells me that they they have some sound associations when I describe what it is I want them to recreate that's important. The next thing I talk about is, you just you ever watch those westerns where they're traveling across on their horses and they get to the edge of a cliff and then it drops 500 feet? Okay, so I want you to think as if you're at the top of that cliff and with your voice, you're going to fall down to the very bottom. Woo! And with young men there may well be a gap in the middle as they go from the falsetto they don't know how to navigate the middle and then they find the bottom of their voice again and we do that several times and if they're having trouble matching pitch I will go to the keyboard play a pitch and say start at the top and descend through the pitches until you reach that one to get them to match pitch and to start to explore the feelings in their physiology for singing for how to make sound and to connect it to specific pitches. And it's not an easy process. When you've learned this younger than eight, younger than ten, we don't even have to think about it. But When you're already in college, then it's going to take a little bit more effort. But it's not impossible. I have had students who have had terrible trouble matching pitch. It takes a lot of work on their part and a lot of effort. But to that end, the beginning of my book in smart music has 52 echo singing exercises. And the first ones have... Just two or three notes, like a measure of Do, another measure of Do-Do-T Do, do ti do 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 re do And they hear it first, and then they recreate it, and the solfege is given. So since that book was published in fall of 2019, when I have students who have trouble matching pitch, I show them that, and they are so relieved that they can go and practice in private. Yeah, yeah, it's not easy, but it's also not impossible.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. My wife teaches middle school choir. And so she teaches, you know, boys and, and girls. But, you know, she's like like with with the boys, she's like, you need to sing through your voice change. Like if you that'll help you with that. And you mentioning how you know, uh, if they sang before they were, you know, 10, 12 or, you know, that makes a big difference because, you know, they last time they sang, they sang up here and now their voices are down there. How do you do that? Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
2: It's a tough, it's a, it's a, it's a huge challenge for young okay. men. The other thing is when people play an instrument that is not in their singing range
3: mm-hmm.
2: and mm-hmm. making a, the octave equivalents and, I find it to be a bigger issue when it's young men who play a low bass instrument, because they want to sing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, are you a Russian bass? Well, you don't you don't want to sing G two, okay? Because you know, you, know, you want to sing G three. Come Uh, up the octave, please, you (laughs) know. Sing in the staff, at least, right? (laughs) That's right, yeah. And and so
0: I have a question, is what type of vocal training should theory instructors have? Because I'm guessing most theory faculty, maybe we had a theory pedagogy class in grad school, maybe, maybe two but I never got any singing training. You know, I sang in choir as a kid, so I had that background, but nothing. I mean, Ben, you're a trumpeter. I mean, what type None. of singing did you even
3: have? Yeah, I have very little singing background and I was actually speaking of voice changes. I was deathly afraid of my voice to change because I thought I'm not be able to do anything in tune at this point because I've been in this register my whole life and that's kind of what I related to and then I was just afraid in middle school from from my voice to change and in came the trumpet and then I just <laughs> started playing trumpet and it didn't have to worry about it. I dropped out of choir and switched over to band and the rest is history, you know? But that's a really, really good question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that, Paul, and I'm curious to what, what you have to say, Cynthia.
2: What's the question?
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> um,
3: so well, what, um, so you're training, you
0: know, yeah. if, if you're recommending someone who's wanting to go into theory teaching, uh, what type of singing experience or understanding should they have if we're going to if they're going to be ending up teaching an oral skills class
2: great question they need to be able to use their voices fluently on any of the label systems that are common and it doesn't have to sound beautiful but it does have to be in tune I tell students all the time, you can sound like Donald Duck, and if it's in tune, I'll love it. <laughs> if it's in tune and accurate, yeah, I'll love it. Uh, then again, pianists, uh, uh, theorists need extraordinary functional skills at the keyboard. Can you teach it without? Sure. Particularly these days, when you can just, you can program it into... Uh, garage band or into finale and hit play or whatever your music processor notational software is we have so many more options now than we did 30 40 years ago Uh, so maybe piano skills aren't as required anymore um and i also think guitar is really useful because it's just the chords <laughs> you know, uh, it's more chords than it is melodic unless you're a classical guitarist and trained uh, in in performing uh, classical guitar works but I find I, I would probably take in my guitar more if it was easy to do so ukulele might be a good option because that's smaller to take into a classroom <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, but, but a real vocal facility do you have to be a professional level quality? No. But you need to be able
1: to model and then diagnose vocal issues. I think too, I think it's it, you need to know how to healthily sing straight tone <gasps> without vibrato because when you are demonstrating for a class If you demonstrate with vibrato, you know, I, I have a lot of singing training, um, but I have found that like, if my voice is tired, it's much harder to sing in straight tone. If I'm demonstrating with vibrato, my students are less accurate, you know, that's just so demonstrating in straight tone and, and. You know i was a music ed major too and that's one of the things they taught us was that with little kids you need to try to demonstrate in straight tone healthy straight tone but in straight tone as much as possible or as close to straight tone because it's a purer sound they'll be able to discern the pitch more easily right vibrato complicates the pitch and so um you know being able to mm-hmm. navigate some of those simple things you know but knowing how to do that healthily so you're not blowing out your voice teaching class, if you're teaching three RL skills classes a day, you know, you don't want to be blowing out your voice singing in class. So knowing how to use a lot of air and do that healthily, but the ability to navigate that difference, um, I think is good. I also, I don't model a whole lot when I teach RL skills. Um, I used to, I used to do much more, but now I give them as little as possible to get the result that I want because including from the piano, because. If if I model, they will copy me, but they cannot do that on their own. (laughs) So my goal is always mm -hmm. to get them to the point where they can do something on their own. So across the years, I have modeled less and less. I don't sing tonicization patterns with them. I don't sight sing with them Um, unless Mm -hmm. I don't chord sing with them. Uh, You know, unless they're about to really crash and burn. (laughs) I model less and less and less in the RL skills classroom than I did as a, a younger teacher. That's a challenge. Yeah. It is. It is. Yep. That's great. So I said chord singing and it reminded me. (laughs) You have these amazing (laughs) chord singing videos. Can you talk to us about those? I call it harmonic singing because the
2: emphasis here is on harmonic. And it is chord. It's singing the chord arpeggios. And the goal is that. You learn to hear all the pitches that you're singing in the arpeggio as one. Can you physically create three notes or four notes at the same time? No. But if you get to a point of being able to sing them quickly enough, then that's on the path to gestalt listening, as Gary Karpinski calls Mm it. I take the approach that I will not ask you to identify in dictation anything that I have not already provided for you to sing and that I have not already assessed that you can sing that musical structure. So I have a first semester freshman class and today they're turning in videos of their first harmonic singing exercises And they're singing along to a song by John Prine. And he's on a stage playing guitar. So if you're a guitarist, you can see the chord changes. (laughs) I love it. And this particular video that I created, it doesn't have me modeling. But it has all the solfege on screen. So that you're not having to guess the labels. But you do have to match pitch with the music video. And only after we've done about two or three of these sing along videos will I expect you to be able to recognize harmonies on your own. So part of it is learning to recognize in a piece of music, in relationship to the given tonic, what chord arpeggios you're hearing, to relate the solfege for those chord arpeggios with a roman numeral yeah and i find that it is very successful particularly when it's connected to real music because who has ever been to a recital in which all you heard was four part chorale style from a keyboard.
1: <laughs> I don't think I've ever been to a recital where I've heard that at all. Nope. Right, right, right. help so, me out.
2: I, <laughs> so, as mi- as much as possible, singing chord arpeggios to real musical examples, such that, uh, and, and a variety of timbres, a variety of musical styles, so that you can transfer your understanding of music and being able to hear chord progressions to when you are listening to the radio, when you are in a concert hall. And the best compliment is always the first time that I see my fall semester students the next semester. And they say, well, you ruined my Christmas vacation. Every music I heard, I had to try to figure out the chord arpeggios. <laughs> it's like, yes! Oh, it's a win. <laughs> it's a win. Yep. Um, before that we actually do real harmonic dictation, outer voices, Roman numeral, uh, I, some people would do the inner voices too. I, I don't, but uh, it's find a sample from the music you listen to that is diatonic. at least four different harmonies and submit a video that has the excerpt without you singing the excerpt with you singing just the guide tones that's another discussion Mm -hmm. and then the excerpt with you singing the chord arpeggios because when you when I know that you can hear harmonic changes within a real musical example and you have sung them all on labels, then you're ready to go notate it.
1: I love that. And that, yeah, breaking down that the whole steps. process. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Right now, my first semester freshman students, we have been singing a lot, and every week they have one or two music videos, just short things. And last week, it was the very end of Firebird. So fa me so re, do, fa mi, re, fa mi, do, re. Well, if you can't sing along with that, um, and this was, I gave the first solfege in every phrase. If they can't figure out the, the, the solfege to sing then they're not ready for melodic dictation where they notate it. And prior to that, they had an assignment where they were at a keyboard playing in octaves right and left hand and singing a five note pentascale pattern. C D E F G F E D C E G E major chord E natural leads to F and do that same pattern a counterclockwise around the circle of fifths major and minor and around D flat C sharp you switch uh, and then we start over in sharps at G sharp minor Mm. so that I know that they can sing a five-note scale. So, therefore, they should be able to recognize a rearranged five-note scale Mm -hmm. from the end of Firebird. But not all of my students are ready yet to hear a piece of music, put it in their head where I have no idea what's going on, (laughs) and then put it down on paper. Yeah. Yeah. And so mm. the harmonic singing facil- facilitates chord changes and hearing specific chord changes. If we have not sung a harmony and I have not given you a chance to demonstrate that you can sing that harmony inside a progression, not just random, but in a progression, uh, then I'm not going to give it to you in dictation. And the other thing, going back to smart music, is that I created smart music exercises that I call harmonic dictation by ear. And in one measure, they hear the harmony. And in the next measure, they have to sing that harmony starting on the guide tone and ascending. So in a set way that we have been singing the harmonies and that's when they can do that they can hear the harmony and then in the very next measure sing the chord arpeggio next chord, hear it sing it, then they're really ready for written dictation and I can Uh give a dictation with the uh, with It's not going to be a certainty, but with a better hope that the process for hearing, putting some sort of label on it so that you know what you're going to notate. Um, yeah, so I break it down into, into three pieces, singing it, singing in assessment, bef- and before we get to the written side. It's a slow process, but when they get there they're able to do it with more certainty than than it just being guessing. This
0: has been such a treat. Uh, I can listen to you talk about chord singing for another hour, at least. I have so many questions, but we'll just have to have you on for another installment. <laughs> all right. Uh, but we do have some rapid fire questions that we would like to ask. we like to ask our guests. And so these are just off the off the cuff kind of questions. Um, we we'll have you uh, answer just, you know, just a short little Whatever uh, comes to the top of your, off the top of your head. So my, my question is, um, uh, minor dough or minor la?
2: <laughs>
0: Answer that in like a minute.
2: <laughs> minor dough. Minor dough. How, how can you call tonic dough in one situation and la in all? Uh, no, minor dough. We're, we're not arguing with that. T- <laughs> but here's, here's my caveat to that. If I were teaching public school, I would use minor law because by using minor law, you can, you can skip over a lot of theory explanation. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Absolutely.
1: Okay. But as a theorist, <laughs> got to be minor <laughs> dough.
0: Great. All right, Jen. i about- got
1: one. What is your favorite chord singing video? Like, what's the song that you just really love every time you assign it?
2: Wow. I, I've created mm-hmm. some new ones recently and there's sally's song from the night buf, nightmare before christmas oh, nice. yeah and and it has neapolitan and i heard it sung um in a student recital and i thought there's the neapolitan that's a great and it was on a student recital so it's like that's a song they know and so right now i'm
1: fascinated with that one <laughs> all right ben you're up
3: Sorry, I had to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: want
3: to listen to that later. Okay, my question is totally, it's not even on the list, but what's more useful, theory or oral skills?
2: First of all, they're intertwined. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it, you didn't commit. I was hoping you. <laughs> I will, though. I will. What is a musician without oral skills? Can you even call yourself a musician if you don't have oral skills? And I tell my students that at the beginning of a semester. I, it's like some other professors may say it, but I'm the only one that's telling the truth. My <laughs> class is the most important you're ever going to take. <laughs> because if you don't have oral skills, what are you doing trying to be a musician? It's the truth. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yep. Absolutely agree. Oh, this has been well wonderful. Taken. And so as, as a wrap up, kind of uh, let folks know, you know, where they can learn more about you. Um, maybe um, uh, email address or a website and kind of things that you've got uh, kind of cooking uh, for yourself uh, uh, in music theory or oral skills.
2: Well, my website is listen-sing.com. And that has a collection of, of movies, sing-along movies, harmonic listening. There's also some part writing videos and some error detection and some transcription exercises. And let's see, what's coming up? I am trying putting together another volume or two for smart music, listen-sing method, volumes two and three, and Uh, much more echo singing melodic motives because error detection and melodic dictation all take a certain level of echo singing mentally and also uh, the full catalog for harmonic singing through augmented sixth major and minor mode secondary dominance all that that needs to be out there and what else do you want to know?
0: And so and you also are at Texas State, right? So if folks are wanting to reach out to you, they can find you probably on the Texas State website, right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. School of Music and I'm the Gonzalez with an <laughs> S at the end. <laughs> So that's our show. Thank you so much
0: for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We will be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification and enjoyment. So until then, bye bye.